The boar's head in hand bear I, bedecked with bay and rosemary, and I pray you, my masters, be merry, goddesses in convivio. Welcome to the Weird Christmas Podcast. I'm Craig Kringle. That's the boar's head, Carol. It's not well known in America because we think that Christmas should at least pretend to be Christian. But I bet you recognize it if you're from the UK, even if it's not the most popular thing. And that's because Europe is still way more comfortable with older pagan traditions at Christmas. That's why it's cool to have a Christmas carol all about slicing the head off a boar, slapping it on a plate, and calling it Christmas dinner. Different places have different sensibilities about how we celebrate Christmas and the kinds of stories we tell at this time of the year. Thing is, if you're American, most Christmas stories are sappy, sentimental things. But why do we have to be happy at Christmas? Seems like a weird tradition that maybe needs an upgrade. I mean, this is a dark time of the year. I'm getting sleepy at like 4.30 in the afternoon, and the cold's just like an ever-present reminder of my mortality. So why can't we just embrace that? Instead, we get all this stuff that's all wish-fulfillment fantasies. God's kids coming back to save the world, the sun will be reborn, and days will get longer, yay! But why can't we just dwell in the awfulness for a bit, rather than hallmark everything up? A lot of the old pagan stories about this time of the year, whether we call it solstice or yule or even like a spread-out Samhain time, the old pre-Christian myths and stories are just way more fun. Plus, it's just historically accurate to mix up our stories with things that are a bit edgier. If you really get into Christmas history, you realize that for centuries this time of year was pretty raucous and even dangerous. I mean, both the English and the Americans banned Christmas celebrations at different points in our histories because of all the damage that the drunken rioters would cause. But it was also because it was a topsy-turvy carnival-type time where the lower classes got to blow off some steam and the upper classes never really liked that part of the celebrations. If you look at a lot of the older legends of this time of the year, there's some hardcore darkness out there. It ain't all Santa Claus and friendly reindeer. There are a lot of collections of these old stories floating around, but to my mind the best is The Old Magic of Christmas by Linda Radish. It came out a few years ago now, but it's well worth your time and I read through it every year. And of course I use this podcast as an excuse to talk to her about it. But before we get to that, I want to thank everyone who submitted a story for the Weird Christmas Flash Fiction Contest. I got close to 200 entries from literally around the world. U.S., U.K., Europe, Africa, Australia. That's way more than I expected. And the quality is, it's going to mean cutting some good stuff (laughs) rather than filling it, which is what I was afraid I'd be doing. But if I got this much for a random try, then I think we've got the start of something really cool. Hopefully the next episode will be the results and the winners and all the best stories, but I've got a lot to work on. Also, I am feeling the love. I got me some more coffees. So many that I can actually pay for that contest now. My wife won't leave me this Christmas after all for giving away money I didn't have to strangers. Thanks again to all the anonymous givers, but thanks as well to Christy VB, who I've chatted with on like multiple social media platforms. Just Plain Howard was very generous. He's got my uncle's name, but I'm pretty sure he's a different guy. Bitter One Stuff from Tumblr, who's read for me on the last two-story podcasts, even jumped in the mix. Although, dude, you helping me out with reading is generous already. And Chris Stanley found me through the podcast. Thank you all so much. And my wife thanks you too. She doesn't understand you. On with the talk. So Linda Radish's book is made for people who like the stranger side of Christmas rituals and stories. She's not out to explain where your favorite boring traditions come from. Quite the contrary. She's talking about all the legends from this time of the year that aren't exactly forgotten, but that just don't fit the primetime experience of happiness and cheer. The book's organized by thematic chapters like Dead by Christmas Morning, Creatures of Forest and Mountain, A Christmas Bestiary, chapters on winter female characters, elves, and a whole chapter about reindeer iconography even before Santa. And although it's not all pre-Christian, as we'll talk about shortly, it's mostly about all the pagan legends that gather around this time of the year in old Europe. And you should buy it, because no matter how much you think you know about Krampus or the Icelandic Yule Lads, she's got stories in here you never heard, I promise. I asked her how it all got started. Usually, like, my first instinct is to tell them the Box of Delights, mm-hmm. which um, is a novel that was written, I don't know if it was 
was written like in the 30s. It's a British novel that takes place at Christmas time. Um, I tried to read the novel and I found it kind of boring. But when I was about 13, it was on public television, the low-budget um, BBC version of it. You know those, I don't know if you're old enough to remember Wonderworks, where it was all shot on video and like they yes. did the Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah, mm -hmm, it's all mm -hmm. shot on video. It's, it's very low-budget. And um, they did a dramatization of the Box of Delights. And it takes place at Christmas time. These kids are coming home from school on holiday. And there's crazy stuff happening. There's there's werewolves on the train and there's a like a woman in a Scottish tartan and she has a ruby ring and she has she says uh, um, the wolves are running and there's her and the hunter and there's all these like freaky aspects to it that the characters in the story seem to re not think are out of place at Christmas time in England. So I think that kind of that might have been when I started making my own Christmas cards, um, and I thought, okay, there's this other aspect. There's these other Christmas characters that I haven't heard of. And then um, I think, yes, yeah, since I was 13, on and off, I've taken some years off. I make my own Christmas cards. I draw an image and um, send it out to everybody. You know, draw a pen and ink image and photocopy it, and you know, send out like 40 or 50 cards. And so I'm always, I was always on the hunt for images to put on my Christmas card. And one year, the Smithsonian had an article on Bavarian folk characters, and one of them was the Butenmandel. And it's just this guy completely covered in straw, and he has a belt, a wide belt of, like, those, those real jingle bells, those big jingle bells that mean business, and he's carrying a whip. <laughs> So I put a bootenmundle on my card one year. It was fun to draw in pen and ink, all that. It's basically like a sheaf of wheat, not even with a face, because they put masks on over the wheat. I just kind of like had like a little face peeking out. Um, so that got me, yeah, so the, the hunt for strange Christmas characters to put on my Christmas cards. And then after I wrote a book on Walpurgis Night, when I was doing researching that book, kept coming across weird Christmas traditions. So I thought, ah, let me do this. Time. And that's great because there hasn't, as far as I know, I mean, you can find a lot of articles online of people talking about this stuff, but I don't know if there's a whole book out there. I mean, I'm sure there's Yeah, there's like books small. of ghost stories, right. Christmas ghost stories, which is good. We need those. We need more of those. People be writing those. Um, but, like, it's hard to find, uh, like, the Czech Christmas traditions. There's a lot of really cool Czech traditions. And when I was researching it, um, there was not a lot in English, and I had to trot over out put these things out, these articles online in Czech, and take them over to a Nepali friend of mine who went to college in Prague, <laughs> and have him help me figure out what was going on in these. The Icelandic legends have gotten kind of popular lately. Like, I hear a lot more about, like, the Yule Lads and the Yule Cat and, and Grilla. I'm not oh, sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but Grilla. Um, yeah. But, and you talk a lot about those. Yeah, I like the Yule Lads. Um, they've gotten a little bit nice. Because they were, you know, their their parents are both trolls, you know, mm -hmm. like like child eating kind of trolls. And these guys, they're they're coming down December first, December twelfth. The first one comes down out of the mountains, and then one more each day until Christmas. And you know, they make trouble. They're supposed to make trouble. Nowadays, they look more like Santas, but they're actually they're you know they are of trollish blood, and they're supposed to be making trouble. And that's and the old cat. The old cat's even creepier, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. 
I think I'm trying to remember everything. There's something about if you is it what was it? I can't even remember what I wrote. If you don't get new clothes, the Yule mm-hmm. Cat will come and get you. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Which yep. puts more pressure on the parents, I think, than the kids. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I think because originally it was not your parents; it was like the the owner of the farmstead would have to make sure that all the servants on the farm got new clothes. Ah. That was kind of like shaming him into, hey, cough up for the new clothes. That's that makes more sense actually. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the Christmas traditions come from the lord servant relationship. The, you know, the upper the upper crust to the people who are really making the whole society run and you know, you know, growing the food and you got to do something to keep them happy once a year. Right. Or there could be rebellion. Right. Yeah. And I, I've heard a lot of historians talk about why that's one reason why Christmas was often looked down on in, you know, talking like three, four hundred, five hundred years ago, because the Lord sometimes didn't want to have to, <laughs> to, to give to the workers quite so much. Yeah, but they would they would if they knew oh, it was yeah. good for them. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And even even into like um you know, the, the colonies and beyond the colonies, um, of course the Puritans looked down on Christmas. You were considered to be unchristian if you celebrated Christmas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they would go around like, you, your shop had better be open on Christmas Day. One thing I really found most interesting about your book was how many dark and scary traditions there really are around this time of the year. You talked about how the Yule Lads have gotten domesticated a little bit. But, yeah, like them, they started off as kind of punishing, um, punishing children or threatening children. And a lot of the European and Scandinavian, um, in particular, traditions you talk about, there's a real darkness to a lot of the traditions, a scariness, kind of the kind of thing that maybe in America we'd more associate with Halloween. Um, and yeah. I wonder if you got a sense of why that might be, where that comes from. Oh, it's like it's so many different threads coming together. I mean, there's the whole, you know, it's the darkest time of the year, so it's a scary time and things are walking abroad but then you know you have of course you have christianity coming in and um saint nicholas often carries a a whip or a rod or you know a bundle of twigs that he might beat you with um and Saint okay so saint nicholas is a saint it's 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 so confusing Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. so he there, there was the the turkish guy the turkish bishop was the, you know, maybe kind of sort of the original St. Nicholas, and he did nice things for poor children, or, you know, he left coins for girls who couldn't afford it, whose parents couldn't afford a dowry, he put those, there were some kids who were, some boys who were cut up and put in a pickle barrel, and he, you know, put them back together. Nice guy, does things for, for children and young people, but then when the Reformation came, it was not okay to be leaving offerings for a saint and to be accepting gifts from a saint. So he was replaced by the Christ child. It was the Christ child, you know, like go, go straight to the source. The Christ child was bringing gifts. Usually the Christ child was uh, played by a girl. I don't know, because they look better. But then accompanied <laughs> by the devil or the Trappist monk. There was a connection uh, in Germany. He was a Trappist monk and he would whip you or stuff you in a sack if you if you weren't good so you had somebody had to be the good cop and somebody had to be the bad cop but then so there was the counter-reformation when the catholics you know the, the protestants did the reformation the catholics like okay we have to get more spiritual too and then the catholics took over the christ child the, the christkind as they call it in germany and they also have it in in 
Czech Republic and Bohemia, and they started using the Christ child, and somehow the Christ child, the, the Christkind became the Catholic gift giver in areas of Europe, and then the St. Nicholas is now again the gift giver in the Protestant north of Germany. So it's confusing. Yeah, and then you have, but the, you know, those scariest ones, they keep popping up. Like, the, everybody loves Krampus. I'm kind of sick of Krampus. So I've been pushing Chert, the the Czech um, Punisher, the one he comes with, with St. Nicholas, and an angel on St. Nicholas Eve, December 5th. I guess the issue I have with Krampus is that he's become just like Halloween. You know, Halloween is for kids. Get, let the kids get scared, let the kids be scary, and then the grown-ups take it away, and then they have these, you know, sophisticated parties, costume parties and stuff. I think the same thing is happening with Krampus. He's now become, the grown-ups love him, the grown-ups have Krampus parties, and, and you know, the Krampus Lauf has been going on for a long time in Germany, but now it's like, it's a kind of sophisticated urban thing, the Krampus, mm-hmm. but the Chert, the Czech Chert, he is still down in the trenches, scaring the willies out of the kids, and he comes and, you know, if, you, if you're not good, then on St. Nicholas Eve, he's going to come and he's going to take you to hell. And kids in Czech Republic are, I was looking at pictures on the internet this morning, and they are still genuinely terrified of him. Oh, cool. That's good. Now, what is, does he look like Krampus? I've, I've seen he him looks, before and read much, a little bit, but I don't know yeah, about him as much. he's like a dead ringer for Krampus. Yeah. Yeah. I know also in the book, you talk a lot about um, elf legends and the ways that elves will play tricks during this time of the year. And I don't know if that was more of the Scandinavian side of, you know, pre-Christian rituals or traditions or legends. Yeah, I love the ones where the elves um, come in the house on Christmas Eve. There's a lot of um, Icelandic stories because you had to travel, everybody had to travel so far to go to church. And there was always somebody who had to be left home on the farm there was either a maid or somebody a a guy who had to look after the sheep and there was always the thing well you know it's always the new guy or the new girl who was left behind when the rest of the family you know they had to stay overnight to to go to church because it was so far and um because it was whoever was left home alone on christmas eve would be found dead and when they came home on christmas morning uh because the elves would come in and if you didn't know the right way to behave with them uh, you would be either be, you would be found dead, or you would uh, be carried off into the mountains or into the wilderness. So um, there's a, so there's always a story about the one either shepherd or maid who did the right thing and you know paid attention, kept their eyes and ears open, did the right thing. Um, in one case, there was a girl who the, the maid she sat there reading her Bible. And she, she, she's aware of the elves coming in, of moving the furniture so they can dance. They start dancing. She's just sitting there reading her Bible, eyes on the Bible, doesn't say anything. And they ask her to dance. She ignores them. And eventually they go away. But if she had accepted the invitation to dance, then they would have danced her. Either she would have ended up dead or they would have danced her out of the farmhouse. So the elves, are, they're, they're, not, um, they're not really hostile. They're just kind of like, well, we were here first, and we've come to do what we do on Christmas Eve, and if you do not behave accordingly, it will go badly for you. <laughs> I like the one, too, the story about the Queen of the Elves, where... Yeah, that's like an epic, that's like yeah. a, almost like Tolkienian epic tale, that whole thing, you know, he goes into Elfland, and yeah, that's a good one. 
And I, the thing I like about it too is it actually kind of fits the solstice pattern um, for her, at least for the Queen of the Elves, because she's been cursed to live as a human and only see her family once a year, and so she lives this kind of dark, sad life. But finally, because the the guy came back alive, like she puts a magic bridle on him and rides him up to the mountains where uh, she can. I'm, I'm telling your story now. <laughs> I probably should have no, been doing this. But yeah, but so so he finds out that you know the the one maid who stays behind in the house, just like you were saying, um, she it turns out she's the queen of the elves, but she's been cursed by a rival or something. I forget exactly. I think it was her mother-in-law. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, and she, but she's finally able because the guy had pretended to be asleep instead of being really asleep. He come, he doesn't die for whatever reason after being bridled and ridden to the mountains, and her curse is lifted, and she's finally able to go back. Um, yeah, she's so, grateful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's like, that's a little that's a happy ending. I know. Yeah, he gets to live, and she gets to go home. And it's also a strange elf story because the human actually helps the elf. You know, it's, that's not a pattern you usually see, I think, in a lot of legends like that. Yeah, so. and the human actually gets to go into elf land. That doesn't usually happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. And come back. And come so back. You get to actually yeah. see their Christmas party that's going on in their hall. And there, and it's you know their twilight land. So yeah, that's I like that one a lot because the human going into elf land instead of the elves just coming out into the human world. Yeah. Well, what were some of the stories that surprised you when you were researching? That were things that you just would not have associated with Christmas stories or this time of year at all. Um, let's see. I knew about La Bethana for a while, and um, she's. I thought, okay, like she's totally a Christian witch mm-hmm. because she's, you know, her story is that she was, you know, she's Italian. Um, she was cleaning house when the wise men came by and asked her for directions and, and said, you know, do you want to come with us and show us the way? She said, no, I'm too busy. I got this house to clean. And so they, so they moved on. And then she got to thinking, oh, they're, they're, they said they were going to go bring gifts to the special baby. Maybe I should have gone. Maybe I should bring gifts too. So she baked a batch of cookies, went out on the road, um, to try to find them and she couldn't find them so now she flies around on the broomstick that she was sweeping with trying to find this baby every um january 5th epiphany eve and because she's not sure which baby it is she just drops toys down the chimney for whatever kids might be in the house just in case one of them is the christ child and her name even um bethana comes from epiphania the epiphany um which is, you know, the arrival of the three kings at the manger. So she seems like totally full-on Christian invention. But the more you look at her, uh, the more she looks like um, the Berchta or Perchta, who was a witch who made the rounds at Christmas time in the Germanic countries, and even some Lucias. There's a whole, there's like a whole race of Lucies, Lucias, and... Um, She's got a lot in common with them, too, including, like, association with the chimney. Because you have, on the one end, you have a, the Sicilian St. Lucy who comes into the house on St. Lucy's Eve, which is December 12th. And if you look at her, she'll throw ashes from the fireplace in your eyes. And you have, so you have her at one end of the spectrum. Then at the other end of the spectrum, you have the Swedish Lucia, who wears the, the white nightgown, the red sash, and the candle crown. And she's really just like the Swedish version of the Klistkint, 
that came after the Counter-Reformation. But then in between the girl in the white nightgown and the witch throwing the fireplace ashes in your eyes, there's like a whole, a whole spectrum of these witches or troll women or helpful virgins who were around at this time of year from like December 12th to December 24th. And, and a lot of them have taken on, um, yeah, the Berta, Bertha, Freya, who was, uh, not so much Freya, Frigga, who was the, a Norse goddess. She's got some bird aspects. It's like, it gets all very complicated and it gets all very tangled. And what you think was probably definitely Christian turns out to be pagan, and what you think was probably definitely pagan turns out to be Christian. And that's part of the fun of it. And you have, you have two whole chapters, I should say, on one chapter basically on... on Lucy or Lucy, I'm never sure exactly how to pronounce it. Um, um, yeah, well, Lucy, Lucy's English, then yeah, L U S S I, and then a, a yeah, and another chapter all on witches. So, um, so there's a lot yeah. of those, and those legends often, I mean, they cross. They're obviously similar, um, and but they're also, like you said, coming from very different places too at the same time. And then you have the witch in Hansel and Gretel, mm-hmm. which even though. Uh, it doesn't take place. I think it takes place in the, in the beginning. The kids have gone out to gather strawberries, so it's not even taking place at Christmas time, but it's become, in, in Germany, it's a Christmas opera. Because and gingerbread houses, they're a Christmas thing too. Um, they're, they're called a Knusperhaus, which is like a crunchy house, or a Hexenhaus, a witch's house. And usually often they have, um, you know, witches speaking out of them or a broomstick sticking up out of the chimney. Um, so you have that. So the, the Hansel and Gretel opera was written, you know, based on the Grimm's fairy tale, the opera was written in the, oh, late 17, early 1800s, Engelbert Humperdinck, I have the date in the book, um, you know, as a Christmas play, as a, as a Christmas opera, and it still is. So, but, but he seemed to know, like, oh, yeah, we have to, have, have to play up the witch aspect at Christmas time. Well, what about the ghosts? Um, since I just I've got ghosts on my mind after that that last podcast in England, I know the ghost stories became so popular. Do you have any sense of where that originally came from? Well, I think because this is the time that the dead would come back. Now we've transferred that to Halloween, and I guess it could have been, um, you know, the kind of they come out on Halloween and they stay until New Year's. <laughs> this was so. So this whole period, it would be. Um, I guess more for the, the Celts, they're coming back at, at Halloween or Sawan, and it seems in the Germanic lands, and England is largely Germanic because they came, you know, all out from the Angle and, and mixed in, but still, you know, the language is coming from the Angle, the, you know, northern Germany and Denmark. Um, so they brought that idea that the ancestors come back at Yule, at the solstice time, um, and of course they're coming back as ghosts. Um, but I find that Northern Germany doesn't have a very good uh, ghost tradition. But England does, though I think, I don't know if it's the Celtic influence, how they get that good ghost tradition. But it's, you know, it's the darkest time of the year. You look out the window and it's dark and you wonder what might be out there. And everything seems scarier. Absolutely. Um, yeah, but the, yeah, I think the, the Victorians... Uh, they knew it was fun. Yeah, things, um, you know, unwelcome spirits coming actually into the house that, that started at Christmas time. Yeah, yeah. And Which seems odd when we think of it as supposedly the time of renewal and of family, and even the solstice is supposed to be, you know, 
a happy time when the darkness is going away. And yet so many of the traditions focus more on the darkness than and, and there's also, the, I guess, the need to chase the dark spirits out so that the, the days can get longer. Yeah, yeah. Like the Advent Thursdays in parts of Germany and Austria, um, the, the more the three, the last three Thursdays before Christmas, that was the time for the kids to go around banging on pots and throwing stones mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. scare away the spirits of winter so that the spring could eventually come. Oh, did you have, did you read in one of the most fun parts of the book to write was, and I'm trying to remember what chapter it was in, where I took a look at um, Tolkien's, the incident where Father Christmas's uh, workshop is invaded by goblins. Yes, yes. That was fun, and and I found a postcard, his goblins ride on back. Oh. And I found a postcard that had pictures of like sort of little cherubic little boys riding on bats, and and the date of the postcard, like he Tolkien could have he could have seen a postcard like that, and wondering if that if that's where he got the idea. Now that would be I know I'm trying to think I've I've seen quite a few cards where little creatures are riding bats. There's a New Year card. I'll find it when we get off the phone. I'll find it and I'll send it and see if that's the yeah. the one that yeah. you're thinking of. So yeah. But now, if anybody, if, if you have kids, anybody who has kids and does not have um, Tolkien's letters from Father Christmas, that's a really good one to, to read at Christmas time. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Well, good. what else are you working on? I want to be sure to, to be able to plug anything else you would like me to talk about. Other books, other projects. Um, okay, so I have the, the my next book for Llewellyn is with the copy editor right now. It has a title. I don't know if I'm supposed to say the title because it's not on there. It's not in the catalog, the Llewellyn catalog yet. I believe it's coming out in the fall. Um, but the subject is elves. Ooh, fun. Uh, because, as you said, there's a lot of elf folklore stories in the Christmas book. And this time, each chapter, I take um, a folktale about elves. And I like like I did with... Uh, Princess in the Mound and, and uh, Queen of the Elves, Hill Queen of the Elves. I just, like, pick it apart and put it under the microscope and ask, you know, what's really what's really happening here? What's this about? Why is this story um, told like this? And there is um, the, the Christmas chapter. There's the, a lot going on in the Christmas chapter. There's always a lot of elvish activity at Christmas time. And, and one thing, if, you, if you're going to Ikea with your teenage daughter... Don't send her to the Swede shop alone to buy the rye bread. They have those, those big round wrapped packages of rye bread. Yeah. The, the, the crispy one with the hole in the middle. Don't send a teenage girl alone to the sweet shop to buy the rye, rye bread because they always disappear. <laughs> There's so many Scandinavian folktales about girls who they're sent to the storehouse to get the rye bread and they get abducted by elves. <laughs> So in the, in the book, we, we'll, we'll try to figure out why. So, Lena, thank you so much for talking to me. I love your book, and I hope other people will find lots of fun, dark, scary stories in there. And thanks for having me. And this, um, if you hate Christmas, this book is also for you. It's for people who love Christmas and for hate Christ, who, who hate Christmas. This is, <laughs> this is also for them. 
Linda and I chatted about a few other topics not connected to the book, and I put that up on the show notes for this episode at weirdchristmas.com if you're interested. But thanks for listening. I almost called you weirdos, like a pet name for people who listen to this podcast, uh, but I don't think I can pull that off. Brian Earl over at Christmas Past always calls his listeners sugar plums. I'd probably end up calling you something like my little collection of Krampus scat, but it just doesn't roll off the tongue. Anyway, I forgot that some people only know about the podcast and don't follow me on Tumblr or Twitter or whatever social media thing you do, but every year I post hundreds of old vintage Christmas cards that are the strangest, most ill-conceived, and poorly executed things I can find. So if you want a daily dose of weird Christmas crap, find me on there. I have a blast, and there's some hilarious stuff out there along with some great riffing on the cards. And speaking of riffing, well, that's a tease of sort for one of the upcoming shows this year. Riff. If you get that, then you know how excited I was to talk to a couple of my heroes. But I don't know if that one will be next or the writing contest results. Depends a bit on when I can read through all the entries. And I asked a couple people to help me decide on the actual winners, so they'll have to read too. There's too much good stuff that I don't trust myself to do it alone. And remember that I'm part of the Christmas Podcast Network, a site where you can get all kinds of good listening recommendations for these couple weeks of the season. There are great shows about the Hallmark movies, which seem to be huge this year for reasons I admit I just don't get. But Hallmark and Jess is one show I highly recommend if you're feasting on those terrible things this year. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Jess. And we're we're Hallmark Hallmark and and Jess. Jess. (laughs) I feel like we're in a car dealership commercial. (laughs) We swear we won't talk like this during the podcast. There's two things we love most in this world. Hallmark movies and Lacey Chabert. And we're breaking down all of your favorite Hallmark movies like... A Very Merry Mix-Up. Rocky Mountain Christmas. And the All of My Heart series. Tommy, please be my husband. So tune in every Wednesday. Today! And that's it. Don't forget that you can leave a review on iTunes or even buy me a coffee at ko-fi.com slash weirdchristmas, and I'll thank you on the next one. Sorry to keep harping on it, and I won't go all NPR pledge drive, but it does help offset the costs of hosting and SoundCloud and WordPress and whatnot. But you don't care about all that. I know you're just here for the beautiful, soothing, dulcet tones of my voice. So until next time, don't let Santa stuff you in his bulging, sweaty sack. The boar's head, as I understand, is the rarest dish in all the land, which must be decked with a gay garland. Let us say, beer and canticle.